Well, I'm beginning today and, and next Sunday. I'll be here again uh, preaching for Pastor Wesley. And we'll be in Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8 is of particular significance to me in my own personal life because it was through the study of the book of Romans that I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I approached this text today, actually for the next two weeks in chapter 8, uh, it was with both a sense of uh, joy, rejoicing, thanksgiving as I remembered that, and also w- with a sense of awe and, and some trepidation because this is a, a powerful text. This is a, a passage where, where Paul basically sums up the first half of his book, his, his argument, if you will, his presentation of the gospel, and, and then moves on into its application. So I, I'm well aware of the weight of this text and of the word of God here this morning. But as I was approaching it, I was reading this week a book called Sticky Faith. Sticky Faith, subtitled Everyday Ideas to Build Lasting Faith in Your Kids. That, that title may appeal to some of you, and some of you may wish you had that title years before now. But these two paragraphs caught my eye, and I want to read them to you as we begin our study here this morning in Romans chapter 8. The authors, Chap Clark and Kara Powell, write this. When your children are taught what it means to live as a Christian, typically they receive a list of what to do and what not to do. Do, go to church and youth group as often as possible, read your Bible, pray, give money, share your faith, get good grades, respect your elders, spend spring break on a mission trip, and be a good kid. Do not watch the wrong movies, drink, do drugs, have sex, talk back, swear, hang out with the wrong crowd, go to Cancun for spring break, or go to parties. Philosopher Dallas Willard coined a phrase that sums up the way too many of us think of faith, calling it the gospel of sin management. The Gospel of Sin Management. Says Willard, history has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned with only how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrong being and its effects. Life, our actual existence, is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message or It is included only marginally. The current gospel then becomes a gospel of sin management. Now, I read that because I'm not going to be able to deal with chapter 7 of the book of Romans. But in chapter 7, Paul is confronting essentially that issue. Uh, And I don't want to be um, unduly harsh with Paul. Because I think what Paul has encountered is... He is speaking for people who, having come to know God, trusting God, have nevertheless looked to the law as the way to please God, as a way to live their Christian life or their life of faith. Uh, and, and so as they do that and discover that they time and time again fail, they come to the acknowledgement or the recognition 
that Paul comes to at the end of chapter 7. For I know, he says in verses 18 and 19, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, he says in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Oh, that's the background there. And, and I relate to that because as I was at Labrie, I shared that a little bit, I was at English Labrie, which Dr. Francis Shaver had begun in Switzerland. And in England, his son-in-law and daughter had a community there, a Labrie community. And my wife and I were there at the end of our time in Scotland. And I, you know, I grew up growing up in the church. I knew the Bible words. I could probably find the verses quicker than you could because I was smart. And But I, I didn't have a a sense of the vital nature of Christian life. And so as I came to Labrie in that context, I, I read about you know, the, the Christian and economics, the, the Christian and marriage, the Christian and anger. I read all about the things that Christians should be doing in their lives and yet smacked up against the reality of the fact that I wasn't doing those things. And so I relate powerfully to Paul's question, who will deliver me from this body of death? How, how do I get out of the knowing of the law, the desiring of the law, and yet the failing in the law? I didn't know it, but I will borrow the words that I just read to you. I was believing a gospel of sin management. And so with that in mind as a background, I want you to turn with me now to our text, Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Verses 1 through 17, you'll find that on page 1200 in your Bibles. Let's hear now the word of God. There is therefore, and again, Paul is, our, our Bibles have a chapter 8 in life in the spirit and in italics, and there's a, you know, a gap of, of white page there. No, Paul goes right in, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, because, the law of the spirit of life has set you, italics, subnotes say me, Paul writing about himself, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace." For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children, sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's bow together as we ask the Lord to bless our hearing of his word. Father, you do indeed send out your word that it might do what you would have it do. Even as the rain and snow come down from heaven and water the earth, so does your word water your creation. And we, your children, are watered by that word. So I pray this morning that as we hear this word read and preached, that you might bring forth the fruit that is pleasing to you in our minds and in our hearts and especially in our lives that would bring glory and honor to your name through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So the gospel of sin man. If you have your bulletin, this is one of the problems with sending an insert out before you've had a chance all week to work on the sermon. So... I'm going to turn around the first two parts, the spirit and our power as number one and the spirit and our peace as number two. And if it's easier, just scratch out peace and write power and scratch out power and write peace. Um, because this is about the spirit. Paul, Paul in chapter seven is dealing with the law and, and the, the law or, or the place of the law and synonyms for the law come up 31 times in chapter seven. That's Paul's focus there. But the Holy Spirit only comes up once in chapter 7. However, in these first 27, I only read 17 of them, but the first 27 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes up 18, excuse me, 19 times by by his own name. The Holy Spirit is there. And so Paul is, is painting, contrasting the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. Having ended there at the end of chapter 7 by saying, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Question mark. He makes this then exclamatory statement. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Question, who will deliver me? Exclamatory answer. Thanks be to God. Though I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So, what we need is a power bigger than ourselves if we are to, in fact, not live under law and therefore under condemnation. I've shared this story before, but it's particularly, I think, pertinent to this whole uh, mindset. I used to run 10Ks, and so I would 
train in around the lakes in Minneapolis when we lived there. And uh, there were two paved paths around Lake Calhoun and Lake Harriet that were connected. One was for runners and walkers, and one was for bicyclers and skateboarders and um, skaters. So I'm running with my dog on the one for walkers, and behind me is a guy on a bike who, by all means, shouldn't have been there. Uh, but he's kind of talking to himself and narrating his experience. And at that time, the Hearns-Hagler fight, some of you old enough to remember that, the Hearns-Hagler fight was in the news coming up, I think, in Detroit. And he was sort of narrating that fight prior to it existing. And, and he was some of that a boy champ. You can take him. And then as we came to a point where the paths both crossed the road, one went off, the bike path went off in a different direction, and the running, walking path kept around the lake, I heard him say as he pulled away, finally onto his own path, sometimes it takes willpower to have willpower. I almost quit running and turned around and looked. I didn't want to give my contact. I didn't know who he was. But that has stuck with me. Sometimes it takes willpower to have willpower. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I think of as an analogy of that is a diesel engine. You've got to have a glow plug or you'll never start it, right? You, you, you have to have a spark that ignites the fuel so that then the engine will then combust and begin to run on its own. We need a spark plug, willpower, to have willpower. And this is what Paul is saying. However, he begins that by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he is, if you will, summing up not just the last few verses of chapter 7. He's really summing up his entire argument in Romans to this point. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 2, because, for... The law of the spirit of life has set me or you free in Christ Jesus. The NIV says, for in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you have two laws, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. And Paul says, two pieces of good news. There's no condemnation for these things that I have shared with you in all of the first seven chapters of Romans. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because, as he will go on to say, Jesus has taken that away, but now there is freedom. There is both no condemnation and liberation. We have been liberated from the bond of sin which held us and the power of sin. He says in verse 3, for God has done what the law, and you know, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 7, his argument about that. The law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. God has done that. That thing which you were not able to do, who will deliver me from this body of death because I don't do what I should do, God has done what the law, weak in my flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that's an interesting phrase there. He doesn't say in sinful flesh because there are some who would say, oh, well, then the flesh is sinful. That's the problem, right? Just get rid of the flesh. It's not what he's saying. Christ came, as John's gospel tell, tells us, he became flesh. The word 
became flesh and incarnated, dwelt among us. That Jesus really was, as you and I, human. Right down to the, you know, the blood in his veins. He was a human person. God incarnate. And he came. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. And again, in the Greek, that is basically as a atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation. The debt that you and I owed for the sins that we did, for the things we failed to do, the, the wretched man that I am who lives in this body of death, that was taken care of by the death of Christ on the cross. God did that, and verse 6 says, excuse me, he condemns sin in the flesh, and the verse 3, in order that, so that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that spark plug, that willpower that we lacked in ourselves, even though we desired to keep the law, as Paul describes in chapter 7, that very failure to keep the law, God takes care of by the death of Christ. So that there's no condemnation for that. Why? Because Jesus' perfect righteousness, that is the requirement of the law, is now given to us. His righteousness is fulfilled in us. God did what you couldn't do for yourself. He punished sin in Christ and fulfilled law in us. And therefore, the joyous exclamation of verse 1, there is therefore because of all these things, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it also points us in another direction that applies today, not just historically, not just to Paul's concern. And that is that our actions, our lives, our law-abiding behavior is God's purpose. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are not justified by the keeping of the law. Paul has argued that. But he's also saying now as we begin in chapter 8, we are not sanctified by the keeping of the law either. We are not made holy by law keeping. We are made holy and thus keep the law. That, that God's desire is to have his law fulfilled in us, as the end of verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, flesh, the very fact of it, makes the law impotent. The law can't do what I should be doing. The law can condemn what I'm doing or failing to do. The law is good at that. In fact, that's what the law does. But the law cannot be my willpower. The law cannot be my performance. And my performance, weakened by the flesh, will never fulfill the law. But if we walk according to the Spirit, it's God's purpose in and fulfilled in Christ to fulfill the requirements of the law in us. So that's the Spirit's power. That's the Spirit's power to enable us to do that. But the difficulty that we have is we are creatures of flesh, the Greek word is sarx. We are creatures of flesh, not just spirit. And the law and the flesh battle. 
So Paul says this then, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh. These are flesh livers. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. This is spirit livers. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This is the role of the spirit in our peace. That that while flesh livers, those who are not in the spirit, set their mind on flesh things, that their desire is, it makes them have as their absorbing interest their thoughts, their affections, their purposes. It's what preoccupies any of us. What our mind is set on is what preoccupies us. It's, it, it's the ambitions that drive us. It's the concerns which engross us. It's the way we spend our time, the way we spend our energy, the way we spend our money. It's what we concentrate on. It's what we give ourselves to. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. I have a friend who used to say, why are we always surprised when pagans act like pagans? What else could they act like? You see, the, mind, the mindset, as Paul is talking about here, the mindset expresses our basic nature as either Christians or non-Christians. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Pretty simple, isn't it? Those who have their minds set on the flesh the things of the flesh, the flesh livers do that. And, and they, they are not like that because they think like that. They think like that because they are like that. In other words, it is their fundamental nature that determines their mindset. And then that mindset has eternal consequences. Verse 6 to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says this. The reason the mind of the flesh is death is that it is hostile to God, cherishing a deep-seated animosity against him. It is antagonistic to his name, kingdom, and will, to his day, his people, and his word, to his son, his spirit, and his glory. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God and cannot please God. And that's, if you will, a challenge that Paul lays down to his hearers and to you and to me. Where is your mind set? What are the things that occupy you? What are the concerns that, that possess you, that drive you? Paul says, almost you can hear an echo of 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, says in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, and I underlined that and made it bold in caps in my notes, if 
the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit doesn't belong to Christ. So Paul says, here's the good news. You you don't have that mindset any longer because you are given a new nature. And in that new nature, because you are that way, you now think this way. You are focused upon the things of the Spirit. That, That if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... Now, he doesn't mean dead. We're not not in the grave physically. He's saying this body is mortal. The the first breath you take when the doctor spanks your bottom is one of the last breaths you're ever going to take. Think about it. There will be a last breath. That's what he's talking about, that this body is mortal. It's headed to the grave, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's where it's going. So this body is dead because of the sin of Genesis 3 and the sin that we ourselves engage in willingly as creatures of the flesh. But if Christ is in you, the spirit, and I would argue verse 10, that should be a small s. Your body is dead, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. It is his righteousness which has been given to us that makes us new creatures. And as new creatures, what we are, now our mindset is different. We now think these things, not those things, because we are different people. Now, notice this. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So that, that the father, the spirit of him, the father, who raised Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, by the Spirit who was life in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's that's the hope, not only of a a by-and-by resurrection on that last day, on that great getting up morning, but every morning that we wake up is a morning that as new creatures, we have a mindset that focuses on the things of the Spirit, and it is there that we are to put our energy and our efforts. Not in law-keeping, you know, if I just have enough quiet times, if I just memorize enough verses, if I just go to enough Bible studies, or if I spend enough time in prayer, then I'm going to be a better Christian. It's not how it works. You are the best Christian you're ever going to be in the eyes of God. You are sinless in the Beloved. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for you. So my wife and I often laugh, you know, I'll be tidying up something at home, and I can be a little bit OCD. Let's just leave it there. And she'll say, there are no police for that. (laughs) What do you mean? No one's going to check and write you a ticket. You're not going to be dragged off to jail because you didn't do it right, right? Well, there's no... There's no police for quiet times. There's no, there's no police for Bible verses. There's no police for attending meetings. There's no police for that. Why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're looking to that and hoping that the law doesn't catch you when you don't do it right, then you're looking in the wrong direction. If there's no condemnation and the spirit who dwells in us and who raised Jesus from the dead gives us life in this mortal body, the one that's going to die at the end, then if this mortal body is alive, it needs to be about the business of the spirit. That is, 
walking according to the Spirit. And why is that? He says, because, again, sometimes you wish that the verse weren't there and the little italics, because we're debtors. We now have an IOU outstanding. To whom? Not to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But to the spirit. And if by the spirit, he says in verse 13, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, there's, there's a kind of life, that is, living according to the flesh, there's a kind of life that ends in death. And there's a kind of death, that is, putting to death, the deeds. there's a life at the end of that. So, one kind of life leads to death, one kind of death leads to life. And Paul says, if you live according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. So, we, in this body, you know, the one that has just marked the birthday on the calendar, the one who has just gotten up at whatever hour, this body right here that brought itself to church, or didn't, if you're out there online, we are the ones who have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So, we have to repudiate what we know to be wrong. We have to repudiate what we know to be wrong. We, we, we don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So if, if temptation comes to us through what we see or, or what we handle or, or what we visit, then we, we have to be ruthless in, in not looking, in, in not touching, in, in not going to those places. And, and thus we, we control, you know, sin's approach to us. Now, I'm glad that there's crown molding in, in my house in large measure because that's where I send my mind when these temptations come to me because they come here first through what comes in the eyes and the ears or what I think about. And I go right to that crown molding and I say, Lord, forgive me. I don't want to be this kind of person. I don't want those thoughts, temptations in my head. Please forgive me and make me different. Now, I haven't bored holes in the crown molding yet by staring, but it gets a lot of gazes. That crown molding gets a lot of looking at, because that's what I have to do. I do not want to be this person who just had that thought. I don't want to be this person who just had that temptation. I don't want to be this person who is inclined to do that. I look at the crown molding. I say, Lord, forgive me, change me, cleanse me. And that's how I need to put away the temptations. I shared with you before this little word that I made up called thripple grep. You can write this down if you want. I'll spell it for you. T-H-R-P-L-G-R-E-P. So whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, if there's anything lovely, anything of good repute, anything of excellence or worthy of praise, that's thripple grep. Put your mind on those things. And, and God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, as Paul, there in Ephesians. T-H-R-P-L-G-R-E-P. I might be pronouncing it wrong, but I call it triple grip. 
Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, if there's anything of good repute, anything of excellence or worthy of praise, put your mind on those things, and God will be with you. Why? Because we are debtors to the Spirit and debtors to grace. Flesh doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. We owe it nothing. We owe it nothing whatsoever. Because, says verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of God. We are children of God. Notice here in these four verses, 14, 15, 16, 17, that the Spirit and our relationship with God, our, our place in the family of God, is enumerated four times. First, the Spirit leads us into holiness. Okay, we're, we're led by the Spirit of God. And then we don't have the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Oh, no, God's going to get me. God's angry at me. God's upset with me. That's where Paul was at the end of chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? God's going to get me. Oh, thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. So in our relationship with God, the Spirit replaces fear with freedom. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, because we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus Christ, we can enter boldly into the very throne room of grace with, with confidence there to receive grace and mercy to help in times of need. And then the Spirit also, in our relationship, prompts us to call God Father. This spirit of adoptions of sons is the one by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's how we know. Not, not by looking at how many verses we memorize, not at looking how many boxes we check, not at sin management. That's precisely the issue. If, if sin management is the way we think we grow in our Christian life, then we are doomed to failure over and over and over again. And we will be inclined to give up. One of the reasons that the authors of Sticky Faith wrote that book was because, as their surveys and research indicated, something like 40 to 60% of kids raised in churches, good Christian churches, fall away from the faith. Part of the reason for that is that they have been taught in church to manage sin, and when they fail to do that because they've gone off to college and fallen into sin or some other reason, they despair of themselves and of the faith that they thought was going to save them. Because they didn't recognize that it is the Spirit who gives them the willpower to have willpower. And they thought they could do it on their own. Because in many ways they could. They were like me when I was a kid. I could find the Bible verses quicker than you, you know? I was probably better at a whole lot of things than you were. I prided myself on my, quote, being a good boy. And then it all fell away when I went away. Because I was counting on myself. So this is the fourth thing that the Holy Spirit does. It is the Spirit who makes us children, in verse 17, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We have, we have radical holiness. We have a fearless freedom. We have a, a prayerfulness of brotherhood or of sonship 
And we finally have the hope of glory that's ours. We'll, we'll be looking at more of that as we begin in verse 18 next week. But, but we need to see now that, that it is life in the Spirit that enables us to move forward as these creatures of flesh, mortal flesh, plagued by our own desires, but with a new nature. We are different, so we can think differently. And because we can think differently and we can cry out to the Spirit, Abba, Father, in the Spirit, we have the power to grow. The same grace of God that it gave us freedom from sin, that, that gave us the life of Christ as the payment for our sins, that same Spirit and that same power gives us the life of Christ as we grow in sanctification. We become more and more like him. John tells us it does not yet appear what we shall be, but this we know. When he appears, we shall be like him. And that is our great hope and joy. And, and Jesus came, he said, to do the Father's will. So we do not ignore or deny or discard the will of God in the freedom that we have in Christ. We are now willing, delightful, obedient, grateful, joyful servants of a God for his purposes in our world. Paul says earlier in chapter 5, verse 1, and I will conclude here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, what a message of freedom, what a message of joy. Your word comes to us, and in our darkness, and in our failures, in our despair, it shines the light of the gospel. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that rest, that yoke is easy, and that burden is light as we follow you. Lord, by that power that indwells us according to your promise, through the death of Christ and in his resurrection. We pray that we may go forth as your obedient children, rejoicing in the grace of God, in the indwelling of the Spirit, and in the sacrifice and lordship of our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.